been with us for the past couple of months or month, um, we're in the book of 1 Peter. So if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and open to 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, we'll be in verse, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 this morning. But as you make your way to that in your Bible, I've got one question for you. How would you live if you had no tomorrows left? If you were told today that you've got 24 hours left here on earth, what would you do differently? What would change about today? Now, if you think about it, really, none of us are promised tomorrow. There's no guarantee that tomorrow is going to show up. Jesus even instructs us, and he says, hey, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. But we're a people that is very, we're very hopeful for tomorrow. And, and I can say that because if any of you are like me, we put off things until tomorrow, Right? So we all assume that tomorrow is going to show up because today was yesterday's tomorrow. Wrap your mind around that, right? But I want us to consider one thing. We have fewer tomorrows the older that we get. And I've realized that. Jamie and I came home from a baseball game. We were heading home from a baseball game yesterday. And we were talking about Andrew and next year. And then we said, that's his last year of playing baseball. I'm like, wow. We don't have that many years of baseball left or that many tomorrows of baseball left. And you remember as a child, right, that Christmas Eve took forever Christmas Day never came, right? It just took forever. But as we grow older, what happens is we try to fight tomorrows. And when we're younger, we're always wishing that tomorrow would get here. But Peter is challenging us here in this book to consider what our priorities are when we recognize that, hey, maybe we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And now, if you've been here, you've known that in 1 Peter, Peter is writing to exiles, those who have been pushed out of their homes, those who are persecuted, those who are being attacked for their life because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And he's writing to them, trying to encourage them. And now later on in the chapters, these chapters of 1 Peter, he is is instructing them, hey, this is how you can live in hope in Jesus Christ as exiles as you go through this. So let us read this section of scripture together. If you would stand and let us honor the reading of God's word, we'll be in chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Well, I skipped a whole bunch, didn't I? Let's start over. The end of all things is near. Or is that that hand? Now I'm making up my own version. (laughs) 
Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May God be honored by the reading of his word, his whole word. Y'all may be seated. So, now, we start off this section of scripture with a really interesting and maybe confusing statement. The end of all things is at hand. And this can be confusing because we know that this was written like 2,000 years ago. So if Peter was writing this, hey, the end is at hand, and now we're reading this and still supposed to consider the end is at hand, um, what are we supposed to do with that? Remember, in Revelation, Jesus' last words were, yes, I am coming soon. And if you remember our study of Revelation, the last days or the end of all things is a phrase in the New Testament that refers to a section of time. Okay? It refers to a section of time being the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That is the end of of all things. So take all of human history from creation to today and then our anticipation of Christ, we are in the end times, right? We are in the end or the end is at hand, which is the beginning, which is between the first and the second coming of Christ. So let us consider living in these last days, living with anticipation of Jesus coming back. Whether we have one tomorrow left or thousands of tomorrows left, how should we live? How should we live if we only have one? Now, there's three priorities that Peter points out. And, and these are three things that he's calling these exiles to live by. The first one that we see is to pray purposefully. All right, so an exile's priority is to pray purposefully. We see that in verse 7. He says, therefore, therefore, since you're living as if there are no tomorrows, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The first priority of living like there's no tomorrow is to pray purposefully. Sober-minded, self-controlled. Now, let's think about this for a second. If you were one of these exiles, you've, got, you've been pushed away from your home, you're being chased after, possibly to be killed because of your belief, your faith in Jesus Christ, what are your prayers going to be? They're going to sound something like, God, please just save us, protect us, keep us close. Please don't allow this to break up my family anymore. Right? Give us a safe place to live. And a lot of those prayers, are, they're fine prayers, but a lot of them are focused on who? They're focused on, on the person, right? They're focused on the individual. They're not necessarily taking into mind the things that God would possibly want for them. 
the situation. So Peter is calling these exiles to evaluate your situation in life, to maturely and correctly think about it through the lens that God is looking through. And to be, begin to pray about these things, to lift them up to the Lord so that we're sober-minded, so that we're focused and that we're alert. Now, I know that we're not fond of sermons on prayer. And the reason I can make that statement is because I think a lot of us really don't understand prayer. We, we don't understand why we pray. Some of us go, man, prayer doesn't work. I've prayed and nothing happens, Right? And I think that's because a majority of people, maybe in this room and definitely outside of this room, think that prayer should be something like this. I rub a lamp, I ask, and it's provided or it's granted, right? Well, God is not a genie in the lamp. Doug Fields, one of my ministry heroes, states the way that God works is this. He says this, God's not waiting to hear our prayers of the marketing plans we have for our lives to determine whether he's going to invest in us or not. Instead, God is waiting for us to forfeit our selfish agendas and to make the decision to follow Jesus, to be obedient. That's how God works. So if you think about it, this is kind of how we treat our children, right? Our children ask, seven-year-old, Andrew comes up, Dad, I need a car, I need to drive to my friend's house. Our response is what? No. No, you're not taking the car. Why? Well, you're not ready to drive. You're not ready to do that. And I think, you know, we need to understand that our relationship with the Lord is kind of like that, right? When, when we pray or when our kids ask us something, when our kids ask us uh, to, for the car at seven, we have three answers, yes, no, or wait, right? Yes, no, or wait. Obviously, at that point, it's a no, but it's not a no forever because someday you want your kids driving, so that they will go away, <laughs> right? It's true, it's so freeing if you're not there yet, right, to have a child that can drive and take themselves to practices. It's amazing. But when we wait on the Lord and we don't give up on him, his timing is amazing. And he does amazing things when we wait on his timing. Consider Isaiah 40, 31, right? I think it's up there. There it is. But they who, what? They who wait, they who wait. It's not they who hurry. It's not they who work harder. It's not they who pull up themselves from their bootstraps and get on with life. It's no, it's they who wait. Then what happens? What happens when we wait, church? The Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But we are a hurried people. We want God's answer yesterday for today's issue. 
but we must trust that the Lord knows what he's doing. Because like you as parents who tell your seven-year-old, no, you can't drive yet, you see the bigger picture. And that's the same with the Lord. The Lord sees the bigger picture. He understands what's going on, and he wants us to trust in him as we call out to him in prayer. So therefore, we need to be focused, sober-minded, clear-minded. Richard Foster, in his book on prayer, states this, that the purpose of prayer is not to change God, but to change us. See, a lot of times we find ourselves reacting to situations in our life, in our prayers, instead of being intentional in our prayers. And I say it like this, something bad happens to us, so we call out for prayer. We say, hey, I need everybody praying for this for me. And that's not bad to go to the Lord's throne during desperate need. That's not bad. We should do that. I'm not, I'm not talking against that. But if that's the only time we approach the throne is when we need something, I think we're missing out. Not only do I think, I know. It's kind of like the college student who only calls home when they need money. Who only calls home when they need something. That's not a relationship with the Lord. That is creating God, treating God like a genie. That's creating God like Santa Claus and saying, hey, you just give. Instead of relationship. The number of parents of college students that I talk to and they're just like, man, I just wish they would call and tell me something cool. Build a relationship with me. Talk with me. Not just always ask for something that's needed. And so to pray purposefully means that we put our agenda aside and those things that so easily distract us and take our mind off of the things of the Lord. We, we set all of those things aside and we intentionally go before the Lord building a relationship with him, maximizing our usefulness in his kingdom as he talks through us. How do we do that? Pastor Derek, a couple weeks ago, shared a book with you about praying through the Bible. It's a great resource. Open up scripture and just start allowing God's word to direct you as you pray. It's a great way to learn how to pray. Now, let's be honest. Prayer probably isn't the number one purpose on your list of purposes for life. And I can say that because I looked up resources and I said, okay, how much does the average Christian pray? One of the sources said that an average Christian prays 45 seconds a day. All right? 45 seconds a day. That means you're praying over meals. Another source said an average Christian prays six hours a year but plans for vacation 140 hours a year. It's a little mixed up, isn't it? It's a little mixed up. And trust me, I, I know this feels like I'm doing this, but I'm doing this. Okay, my prayer life is nowhere near where I want it to be. Nowhere near where I want it to be. And I've been challenged by this section here um, that, that Peter shares with us in, in trying to grasp I have less tomorrows. And my number one purpose, priority, should be prayer. And I think Peter understood this. I think Peter understood this because if you remember, Peter was one of the guys, the three, that got to go a little bit farther up the mountain. 
right in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus said, hey, guys, you three pray. I want you to pray. And I'm going to go up a little bit further. So he considered, Peter is looking and going, you know what Jesus did with his last hours? He prayed. So the end is near. Prayer has to be a priority. Purposeful prayer has to be a priority. Now, what was Peter, and this is where I think he learned, and this is where it's hitting me. What was prayer doing when, what was Peter doing when Jesus came back down after his time of prayer? He was sleeping. I hope that we are not caught sleeping, but yet we are praying purposefully. The second priority that we see is to love deeply. Look with me in verses eight and nine. It says, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, we would all agree that the characteristic of a Christian or the identification mark of a Christian is to love. And love identifies us as belonging to Christ. He says it in John 13, 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Let's try again. If you Love, yeah, if you love one another. So look at this word earnestly. Earnestly, some translations say fervently or deeply. And these words give the idea to love strenuously, okay? This, this picture of a horse at full gallop trying to reach for every bit of ground that they can get. That's how we are to love. Or an athlete straining for the finish line is how we are to love so if we retranslate this, basically is when you love people, you give it your all. In church, this is what we're called to. We are called to love one another, holding nothing back. The word love here is the Greek word agape. All right, agape is sacrificial love. This type of love does not love just based off of a feeling, right? But this is a love that has its mind set. Mind set to love. And the goal of agape love is always to seek the good of another person. And the evidence of agape love is actions. It's not just words. So therefore, believers are to love one another deeply. Now, one of the most difficult times to love another person is when? is when they've hurt you or when they've wronged you, when they've sinned against you. That's a hard time to love other people because we think, man, they should know better. They're a Christian. They should know not to hurt me like that or say those things against me. Now, our response has to be agape love, and this is what we're called to. And what does it do? What does agape love do? What is this love that strenuously, fervently loves other people? Well, it covers a multitude of sins. Consider this word covers. What does the blood of Christ do to us? It covers our sin, right? It covers our sins. Agape love forgives as Christ forgives us. 
It's hard. It's difficult. But it's what we're called to do. See, a lot of people, though, take this verse and, and they say that love ignores sin. And that's not the case. Right? This does not mean that. Confrontation of sin is necessary and appropriate, especially when love is demonstrated in it. See, Matthew 18, uh, verse 15, talks to us about how we are con to, to confront others about their sin. The first thing is, I see it, and so therefore I am supposed to go and talk to that person. If that person is not won over, then what? then I take somebody else with me and I say we confront that person about their sin. If they still are not won over and repent or ask forgiveness, then we do what? We bring the church with us is what Matthew 18 describes us to do. What this does is it covers. It doesn't expose sin, but it covers it. And so therefore, my job is not to be the sin mafia and to expose everybody's sin. To go, you know what? You did this against me. That's it. I'm talking to this person and then I'm going to talk to this person. And I'm going to talk to this person and tell them all about these things that I've seen in your life. No, because that exposes sin. We're supposed to win this person back. We're supposed to restore them and allow our love to cover the multitude of sins. Now, part of that is also forgiveness, right? Because if somebody hurts you, you've got to then extend forgiveness, which is like agape love. It's an act of the will. It's a personal choice. We either choose to forgive or we choose not to forgive, and look how this impacts the church. Wayne Grudem states it this way. He says, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, even some large ones, are overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflict abounds. Nobody wants to be a part of a church that looks like that, but a church that cares for, loves one another deeply. Now, there's a second part of this love action that Peter points out to us, and it's this idea of hospitality. All right, we get the word hospital from hospitality. The New Testament translation, this literally means to love the stranger, all right, so just as hospitals are there to care for those who we do not know, um, we are called to love those that we do not know. And it blows my mind this past year, especially the number of people that said, I hate that person. Hate's a really strong word. I think we say that to our kids a lot. But it's impossible to show hospitality if we hate someone. So instead of hating someone, I think what we should do is consider who they are. Try to sit across the table from them. Put yourself in their shoes to understand where they're coming from, the view that they are looking at. And then recognize, too, that they're made in the image of God. Made in the image of God, so therefore we cannot hate 
We cannot hate. And Peter points this out because this was vital in the early church because they met in homes, right? The early church met in homes, and so they had traveling preachers and all kinds of people coming in, evangelists, and even new believers. And, and they would stay in their homes. These people would give up their food. They would give up rooms. They would give up um, um, clothing, whatever it is, to be hospitable to them. And Peter points out, hey, be hospitable. Don't what? Don't grumble. Don't grumble. Now, what is grumble? Right? I think we've all done it. It's kind of that time when you say, when you say something that you're like, I don't want everybody to hear it, but I want them to hear it. Right? To recognize that they've kind of overstayed their welcome type thing. Grumbling is just, a, is, is just words under your breath. And in the, any century, really an unexpected guest is an inconvenience. Even the best behaved guests can overstay their welcome. But agape love provides hospitality without whining or complaining about the time or the expenses that that person is there for. So we're supposed to be hospitable in our love. Love one another deeply. Love the outsider deeply. And then finally, he gives us one more thing. So we're to pray purposefully. We're to love deeply. And then finally, we are to serve sacrificially. As each has received a gift, this is verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything... God may be glorified through Christ Jesus or through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So why do we serve sacrificially? It brings glory and honor to God. That he may be glorified. So let me ask this question. We talked about gifts here, right? That, that God gives you gifts. So what if I'm not using the gift or the gifts that God has given me? What if I'm not using them? Well, then I'm not making or taking every opportunity possible to give glory to God, the glory that he deserves. Now, trust me, I've worked in the church for over or about 22 years. And I've heard every excuse of why I can't serve in that area. Okay, I can't serve there because I'm more mature and I've kind of outgrown that. Okay. Um, you know what? I've paid my time. It's time for somebody else to step up. Mm, okay. Right. Now, hear me out. The gifts that God has given me have changed through the years, all right? I used to be a spry young man that could lift thousands of pounds, right? <laughs> but then about five or six years ago, I had back surgery, and they said, don't lift, you know, over 10 pounds. My limit's about 50. 
okay? I know there's different things in the church that I can't physically do anymore. But that doesn't mean that God's done with me. Right? God continues to shape me and mold me to look more and more like Jesus every day. And he wants me to use these gifts to do what? To glorify him. So we're never done serving God's people. We're never done. So how are you using the gifts that God has given you? Now you might say, what gift? What gift? How do you find out what gifts the Lord has, has given you? Well, you serve. You go serve. You find a place that needs something and you, and you jump in. So that's one way. And then you'll realize, yeah, I'm gifted in this area. Or you know what? Uh, Zach doesn't want me in student ministry. That was, you know, I'm, I need to go somewhere else. Or you ask. Ask some of your friends. Ask somebody in your Sunday school class. Ask somebody in your discipleship group. Hey, where have you seen me glorify God by using the gifts and talents that he's given me? And they'll share. They'll say, hey, I've seen you do this, and you're amazing at that. Continue. Or have you ever, ever, have you ever considered, you know, using what you do at work for the church? And then finally is, if you see a need, fill it. If you see a need, fill it. Because the Lord put that in your eyes to see that, and so that means it's time for you to jump in. If you hear of a need, say, how can I be a part of that? Uh, we have needs in our security team. We have needs in our sound booth. We have needs for greeters. We have needs in preschool ministry, in children's ministry, in student ministry, in adult ministry. We have needs. Jump in and begin to sacrificially serve and find out where the Lord wants to shine his grace through you. See, that's one really interesting part about this section of scripture. It says, as we serve one another, we steward God's varied grace. And this word here gives us this picture of God shining his light of grace through us. And it's really neat because as God shines his grace through me, I might shine blue. And as God shines his grace through my wife, she might shine green. And as God shines his grace through you, it might be red or yellow or purple or polka dot or floral or striped, whatever. But it's all a beautiful image. And the neat thing is, is that as God shines his varied grace through you, it's not monotone. We're not all one color. We're multiple people. We're multiple things of light, right? And then what that does to the outside world is as they see the church serving, sacrificially serving one another, as God's light shines through us, that shows this beautiful image of who Jesus is. It shows a beautiful image of who Jesus is, and that's what's so awesome about being a part of a church that prays purposely, that loves each other deeply, and that sacrificially serves one another. Now finally, the, 
really cool thing about all of this when it comes to serving sacrificially is hearing this last part. And it's one that we often forget. But it's this. If we have the gift of speaking or we have speaking gifts, know that you're not speaking your own words or your own thoughts. You are speaking the oracles of God. You are speaking the words of God. And if you have active gifts, we're not relying on our own strength, but we are relying on the strength that we draw from the Lord. So did you catch that? In our sacrificial service, everything that we do, what we say or what we do is provided by God. That's awesome. That's awesome. So let's close with this. None of us know how many tomorrows we have left. What are we doing with it? What are we doing with our todays? Let's not push them off and say, you know what, I'm going to put that off till tomorrow. Let's turn our priorities into the priorities that the Lord desires of us. Let's pray with a purpose. Not frantically, but knowing that the Lord is going to guide us and lead us through all this. Let's love one another deeply. Covering sin instead of pointing them out. Let's be hospitable to those that need to know Christ. And then finally, let's serve. If you're not serving someplace, please find a place to serve. Come ask one of us. We'd love to help you find a place because there's joy in that. There's great joy in that. So don't miss out on those opportunities. Let's pray. Father.